With your Amex card, entertainment benefits like special ticket access and pre-sales to select can't miss events while supplies last, make every tap music to your ears. At Bed365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball. From growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball. From Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. They are Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. This incredible body of work. I really appreciate the integrity. Everything you do is well done. You guys do a great job. We love it. What can we say? He's Chris Maddox. He's employed by Sports Illustrated. The announcer's got it in for me. There you go. This is the Crossover NBA Podcast. You have a problem with it? Build a team that can beat them. Hosted by the one and only. Oh, thank God. Thank God. Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back. Crossover NBA Podcast. Got a good show for you this week. Howard Beck, senior NBA writer from Bleacher Report. He is going to join me. And we're going to talk about the finals. But the big news this week is that Doc Rivers is out in Los Angeles with the Clippers. Let go after fizzling out in the second round of these playoffs. We talk about what happened with the Clippers, who might be next for that team, is Phil Jackson a candidate for that job, and exactly where they go from here after the Doc Rivers era comes to an end. We also talk about the Celtics, where they go after losing in their third conference finals in four years. Stick around for that great conversation with Howard Beck. A little bit later on, Mike Breen, the voice of the NBA for ESPN, and ABC. He joins me to talk about his experience calling games inside the bubble, calling games from behind plexiglass for the first time. Also his work with Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson. Plus, Mike has called all of LeBron's 10 finals appearances. Where does he see this finals appearance ranking against all the others? Stick around for that great conversation with Mike Breen as well. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, very easy way you can support it. Head over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that I keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, on to my conversation with Howard Beck. 
All right, Howard Beck is here, senior writer over at Bleacher Report. Check him out on the Full 48 podcast as well. A terrific show. Uh, I'm sure most of you listen to it after you listen to this podcast, uh, but definitely get to it from time to time. Uh, what's up, Howard? Not much. I mean, I'm sure you know if they've got any time left after they've listened to your podcast, then maybe you know they'll give me a few minutes here and there. God, God bless the people that listen to podcasts for you know, hours on end. Like Joe Rogan has one of the most popular podcasts, maybe the most popular podcast out there. It's like three hours long. Some of these things like my, my attention span is not that great. It's just not, no, me either. And and there are a lot of great pods out right now. There are a lot of NBA pods alone could just fill your entire day at this point, especially with players. Now, Kevin Durant's got one. JJ Redick has his CJ McCollum's guy. Like it's, it's just proliferating and it's, it's getting to the point where I, I can't keep up. You and I are heavy, heavy users of media. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, I can't, I can't keep up anymore. Uh, we, we need to get back to commuting and gyms and stuff so that we actually have time to listen to podcasts while we're doing all that other stuff that we need to kill time. That's true. You know, the gym experience, uh, was a good time to knock out a couple of them. So let's get them back open and up and running and, uh, you know, we can, we can start, uh, you know, getting rid of the saturation of podcasts. Um, all right, let's jump right in here, Howard. The big news this week uh, is not the start of the NBA Finals on Wednesday. It's that the Clippers have parted ways with Doc Rivers, which a team always says they're doing when they fire a head coach, which is exactly what the Clippers did with Doc Rivers. Steve Ballmer uh, had his fingerprints all over this, quoted multiple times in the press release announcing the release of Doc Rivers. Doc had one of the best winning percentages in the NBA in his seven years on the job. His playoff performances left a little bit to be desired. Uh, Of course, the most recent one, blowing a 3-1 lead to the Nuggets in the second round of uh, these past playoffs. Uh, I guess first, Howard, just your reaction to the Clippers letting go of Doc Rivers. I was stunned. I mean, I I, I gotta say, I was stunned. I, I, you know... The disappointment over that second round exit obviously was palpable. And yes, we are, we are used to this in this league. There are consequences when a team with championship aspirations falls short. But there were just so many circumstances, so many unique challenges this team had to deal with that this was not an outcome I, I really expected. I mean, it, it wasn't without outside of the realm of possibility by any stretch, but Given everything, no Pat Beverly, you know, or Montrez Harrell or Lou Williams at times in the bubble, all those guys having to leave to deal with family issues, that being a, a disruption to their chemistry. The fact that even during the regular season before the restart, you had Paul George having to uh, rehab his shoulders first, so he wasn't available at the start. Kawhi Leonard's being load managed. Those guys don't get a ton of time together on the court. Like, this team never really got a chance to establish itself, and – Look, I was among the people, and I think you might have been too, who, who leaned Clippers, not by a lot, but when we were you know, making our, our flimsy prognostications last October, it was, hey, you know, the Clippers by a little bit over the Lakers because they had more depth behind their two stars. And they were legitimate contenders. And yeah, they fell two rounds short, but I don't think that that's on Doc. Um, I, we could talk about, you know, Montrez Harrell versus Ivica Zubac and all that stuff, you know, against Jokic. I get it. But um, he's a great coach, and he'd been there through the toughest of tough times, the Donald Sterling saga, when he was, uh, you know, the, the conscience 
and beacon of that franchise to, to guide them through that. Um, and, you know, I, 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 just, I just think this feels hasty. It feels hasty and I don't buy the, uh, you know, assertions that this was somehow mutual parting of the ways. This very, very much looks like the Clippers said, we've decided to move on. And the only thing, the last thing I'll say, the only thing that makes sense to me is if they sense that the team wasn't responding anymore, which happens, and teams internally know this better than we do on the outside, if they felt like there was some lack of response there, and or especially from their two stars who are both on one-year deals now. And maybe they also thought that Ty Lue is ready to step in because that's the other piece. You don't, you don't fire a coach of Doc's caliber without knowing where you're going with it next. You're not doing some like 20-person search or something. Maybe it's because they're already prepared to elevate Ty and maybe Ty already has the buy-in from the stars. Yeah, to me, this was a stunning overreaction. Uh, Doc absolutely as the coach of a team that blew a 3-1 lead, deserved to be taken to the proverbial woodshed, you know, for that. You know, criticized, have his rotations criticized, his fourth quarter decisions criticized. Everything was fair game in dissecting this series. Did he deserve the basketball death penalty? No. No, he didn't. I mean, I didn't buy the whole Paul George argument of, you know, it was never championship or bust for us this season. You don't say stuff like that. But the number of teams that were put together basically on the fly and win a championship in their first year, you could probably count on one hand, maybe two hands. I know the Celtics did it back in 2008. But, I mean, let's not forget Miami failed when they uh, put their super team together. They lost in the finals to the Dallas Mavericks. Yes, the Clippers came up far shorter. You know, losing in that second round. But does it really matter when you lost? I mean, if you lose, you lose at that point. I didn't think that you needed to fire the head coach after this experience for all the reasons you articulated there. I mean, the fact that they had half a team, you know, for the first half of the bubble experience during the seeding games. Harold didn't play his first game until the first playoff game. Patrick Beverly missed, you know, what, uh, all but one game of the Mavericks series. They had major chemistry issues. But I go back, Howard, and I look at what they did before the pandemic hit. They had won eight of their last nine games. They were starting to play good basketball. They had beaten Oklahoma City. They'd beaten Denver. They'd beaten Houston. They were starting to peak in a way. Then everything gets shaken up and things change. And it's not an excuse. I mean, Denver had as many problems as, as, as the Clippers did. I mean, they had myriad issues you know coming into uh the bubble but they still had the you know the intestinal fortitude to rally and you know win a series like that come back from 3-1 down but the idea that it required a coaching change i i just i unless you saw so much internal dysfunction before the pandemic which i guess is possible there were some issues with that team before the pandemic hit chemistry issues but unless you saw that i don't understand the decision to bring Doc Rivers back. I'm with you. I think Ty Lue is probably a front runner for this job, but I'm not so sure that Ty Lue is any better of a fit for this situation than Doc Rivers. Yeah, unless it's simply a matter of some player or combination of important players decided 
that Doc just wasn't the guy. If he, maybe he just lost the room. I mean, it, it does happen. The weird thing is, usually if you lost the room, it's because you've been with a team too long, um, or maybe you didn't have the standing to begin with, like David Blatt. But in Doc's case, it's not like this is the same group he's had for seven years. Like when we talk about like, you know, the Larry Bird rule of after three years or whatever, or Phil Jackson has talked about sometimes after five years, your, you, your voice grows stale, your message grows stale. But this was a fairly newish group still, and certainly the two stars. I just think that <clears throat> for a team that overachieved, a, you know, a year ago wins 48 games with no stars, and then you graft on these two guys who are both, you know, all NBA type players, but who'd never played together with each other, much less th that team that, that was very prideful about what they'd accomplished without them. You could see those strains. You could hear it. Montres Harrell said some stuff back in January. Yep. Um, they're, they, you know, and those things, those are player personality issues. Those are not coach issues. Now a coach among the many, many duties a coach has in this league is to try to tamp down those concerns and corral guys and get them on the set, like all that stuff. But it's not always possible. Sometimes it's just about the players. And whether it's the basketball side of it or the chemistry side of it and the personality side of it, I just don't think that this, this is laying at Doc's feet. Um, they, they had concerns that went way beyond coaching. He's taking the fall for it for whatever reason. Maybe internally there's something else that, that we are not privy to at the moment in terms of the, the faith that whether it's above him or below him that they had. I don't like that Balmer's fingerprints were all over this. I get nervous, you know, if, if I was a fan of the Clippers, I'd be nervous when an owner makes basketball decisions. I mean, nowhere in that statement, Howard, was a word or a mention of Lawrence Frank, who's the team president, who... Really, really interesting, right? Really interesting. Now, I, I would imagine Lawrence would have a very difficult time firing Doc Rivers because Doc effectively hired him, elevated him, and then watched as Lawrence uh, kind of took that role and he went back to a full-time coaching capacity. All that being said, like not even a cursory statement from Lawrence Frank, who is, you know, nominally running your team. He's supposed to be in charge of that organization. I thought that was, it was conspicuous in his absence. And I wonder, like, what did Ballmer think this season was going to be? How, sh like, did he go into this year thinking, we got Kawhi, so we're Toronto. Like, we're Toronto now. We're Toronto 2.0. We should be the favorite and a lock to win a championship. Well, the Clippers are not the Raptors. The Raptors, when Kawhi came into the Raptors, it was like a perfect storm. Like, everybody on that team kind of slid into a role. It took Kyle Lowry a little bit of time to get there, but he did eventually get there. Siakam knew his role on that team. Ibaka, Gasol, they knew their roles in that team. The Clippers didn't figure it out this year. They had guys that didn't know their roles, that wanted bigger roles, that maybe didn't understand the whole load management part with Kawhi. Like, there was a lot of inner, inner, inner issues uh, with that team. I don't put that on Doc. I don't think Doc should have been the guy to, you know, kind of blend together this team to make it a championship team, to, to absolutely guarantee you a championship. Now, next year, if he didn't do it, all right. Full season, you're out. That's it. But next year, Howard, is, I think, and it's not hyperbole, the most important season in the history of the Clippers franchise. Like, if they don't get to the finals and wind up losing one or more of Kawhi Leonard or Paul George, I don't know what they are for the next decade. They've traded all their assets away. Uh, they're kind of a middling playoff team with nowhere to go. 
So it's to me, it's a pretty big gamble to let go of a proven coach in Doc Rivers when you enter when you're entering the most important season of your in your franchise history. And you might find another coach who's maybe better at certain aspects of the job, or you know, maybe maybe they're you know what whatever it may be, practice routines, uh, X, simple X's and O's, out of bounds plays, whatever whatever category you want to check. Let's say there's something that you're going to get in the next coach that's better than what Doc did by some degree. You're still also, though, losing on the other side of it, one of the most definable and powerful personalities, charismatic personalities in the coaching ranks, and that matters in this league. Yes, there are some more, I would say, demure personalities, a Brad Stevens who just kind of fades into the woodwork, and Frank Vogel is kind of of that that uh, that mold, too. There are guys who just kind of do, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, Taylor Jenkins in Memphis, like these guys who just, they're good game managers. They're good with their players, whatever, but they're not larger than life personalities. And I think that at times in this league, you need that. You need the credibility and the, the powers of persuasion that come with, uh, you know, a Doc Rivers who not only has the championship ring and, and the playing experience in this league, but has been around, has coached some of the best players in history, has coached Hall of Famers, has all that credibility and just has this way about him as a communicator and as a, just a powerful personality. And I think when you're trying to corral a bunch of different egos and guys with maybe differing agendas, you need that. Now, did he do that to the, to the best possible ability this season? Maybe not, but that is one of his strengths. And so I think that that's more about, again, the circumstances of the season than about anything that doc failed at. And I do think that given all of that, given the thousand different ways that you could you know put caveats on how this season unfolded you, you i think you owe it to yourself as a franchise to have him come back for next season which is presumably going to be slightly more normal may not be normal but but more so than this season and if you and if there's still problems then okay now now maybe it's about the coach but for a team that had this choppy of a season not to have a a, a normal season together um and, and without without you know Paul George starting on the shelf because of his shoulders like that, I, it just doesn't it doesn't sit right. Um, but again, there may be other pieces of this that we're not privy to yet that will come out in the in the days to come. You know what I wonder about Ty Lue too. Do you think there'd be any hesitation on Ty's part to take a job like this? I mean, it's one thing to take the seat that David Blatt vacated. It's another to take the seat that your really close friend mentor. Uh, the guy that brought you into the fold in LA made you extremely highly paid assistant coach. Uh, do you think there's any hesitation there from Ty Lue? I mean, look, Doc's a pretty magnanimous guy. I'm, I'm sure that Doc would say to Ty, you know, if you have the opportunity, take it. Uh, but I wonder if there's any, you know, because Ty's going to have some opportunities. I mean, whether it's yeah. New Orleans, Philly, uh, he's in the mix for these jobs. I wonder if there'd be any hesitation on his part to take this job because of what happened with Doc Rivers. I think. Ty, the way he's built, I think there's definitely a strong loyalty factor there. But I think to something that you already alluded to, Doc probably the first thing he would tell him would be, look, if they offer you the job and you want it, take it. Don't don't stand on ceremony over me. I had a good seven years. Um, but they do go way back. I mean, Doc is the one who gave him his first coaching job in Boston too. Yep. Um, so, you know, Ty's been with him a long time. I, there's probably, you know, few people who are as, as important to, to, to Ty's career as Doc is. Um, but you know, 30 jobs in this league and, and only a handful where you can say, I've got a chance to win a championship. 
if that's available to him, if that if that's the direction they want to go, I gotta believe he probably takes it. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think it'd just be interesting to see if he jumps at it or if he starts to see if what else is out there. If Philadelphia's real, if New Orleans is real. Uh, I'll be interested in the next couple of days. Um, last thing on the Clippers. Is there any chance that Steve Ballmer makes a phone call to Phil Jackson? Any chance that 75-year-old Phil Jackson has interest in this job? No. <laughs> Come on! Wouldn't that be I, awesome? I know I know you threw that out there. I know Kawakami, I think, might have alluded to it. Whatever. I, I was seeing and then I saw... Uh, you know, we get like a thousand emails a day from the odds makers about all the ridiculous stuff you can bet on. Phil oh, Jackson, yeah. four to one odds or whatever it was for the Clipper job. Give me a break. No, no. If if Phil Jackson could still coach, if he were still physically up to the challenge of coaching, he would have coached the Knicks instead of being team president, or he would have coached any number of other teams in the last, whatever it's been, nine years since he walked away from the Lakers. Um after that catastrophe against the Mavericks. Um, no, no, no. I, I, I would love to see it, but no. You're no fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm Mr. Cold Water here. I don't, first of all, I don't disagree with you. And mostly because Phil's 75 and his body's like a game of operation right now. Like it's just, <laughs> he's, he's just a physical mess. Like and it just happens when you play basketball that long and your, your body goes through what it goes through. I do think, Howard, though, and maybe it's just playing devil's advocate here, I think there's a part of Phil that would, lo- that would love to take the job. Just for the opportunity, two reasons. One, to go back to L.A., where he's obviously comfortable living, uh, spent a lot of time there as a head coach, uh, to stick it to the Lakers, who didn't exactly grant him the most you know, graceful of exits as a head coach when you, you know, follow up what happened after Mike Brown, Mike D'Antoni, and all that stuff. Uh, I think there's a part of him that wouldn't mind sticking it. Plus, there's never been, Howard, a head coach that has won a championship with three teams. Like, Phil's already the all-time winningest coach in terms of championships, bested Red Auerbach. There's never been anyone that has won three on three different teams. He can best Pat Riley in this situation. I mean, you know Phil much better than I do. You know the competitive juices, even in a broken body, still flow through him. Oh, there's no question about that. And I think that I know people have always focused on, oh, well, $12 million a year for the Knicks and it's about, he had plenty of money. He didn't need that headache. He didn't need any of that. But yes, the man is incredibly competitive, loves the game of basketball and wanted to still be involved. And he saw that as a way to put his imprint from a, a little bit more of a distance. It didn't work out so well, clearly. But I will say this, actually, since, since we're, we're going to keep going down this, this rabbit hole. <laughs> Um, in all seriousness, here's what I do know about Phil that I, I, that I, I think is very, um, it, it, it's, it's substantial, it's meaningful, and it's definitely true. When he was toward the end of his coaching career in LA and he was thinking about what the next thing would be and whether it would involve directly coaching, he talked at length about, uh, we, we sat down once for a story back in 2011 where he talked at length about wanting to be a mentor. And that's, that's what I think led him on down this, this, this unfortunate path with the Knicks was he thought that from the front office, he could be a mentor to a first-time coach in Steve Kerr, if Kerr would have taken the job, or to Derek Fisher, who ultimately uh, ended up with a job. Um, you know, Hornacek, obviously, in there too. But like he wanted, he wanted to still 
one, have the triangle be meaningful and, and relevant to the NBA, but two, to pass on everything else that he knew about running a team as a coach. And he thought he could do it as a mentor figure from the front office, not realizing, I think, or appreciating fully that that, off, that job is, is about so much more than leading a coach. It's about all these, a thousand other things that have nothing to do with even the day-to-day of coaching. But he always talked about wanting to play this mentor role. That being the case, Chris Mannix, how about this scenario? What if, what if it is Ty Lue who counts Phil among his mentors, among his most influential, because that's where he started his, his career was, was as a Lakers guard and was on that championship team that beat the Sixers back in, in 2001. And Ty Lue, I think, still has high regard for Phil. What if Phil finally was able to, because I don't think his, 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 his ego before would have let him be an assistant, but much as Tex Winter was this in, incredible resource for him next, next to him on the bench, and we've seen others, Ron Adams next to Steve Kerr, maybe he could play that mentor role that he talked to me about nine years ago as lead assistant or among the top assistants for Ty Lue, because then he doesn't have to be out on the court every day. He doesn't have to travel, which is a real problem for him at, at this stage of his life physically, even if he weren't 75, even five years ago, that was what was standing in the way of him being a full-time head coach again was just physically the travel, just all, all of it. So maybe he could be the, the, the lead assistant. I, I, I think he still has his, his place in Playa del Rey. Um, that would be interesting. I, I, I would, think though, I, would, I, I think though, like for that to happen, Ty would have to buy into the triangle in the same way the text went or Phil but, bought into the triangle text winner. But right. But maybe because Ty has already now won a championship on his own as a head coach. And, and, and this would be his second head coaching job. He's got his own philosophy. He's melded, as a lot of coaches do, a little bit of Phil Jackson, a little bit of Doc Rivers, a little bit of, of what he picked up from Tibbs. Like, he could, he, could, he could do it on his terms. He could say, I'd love to have you here for what you'll see in the course of a game and for the things that, that, that you bring, just the day-to-day knowledge, just a sounding board, but, but I'm not running the triangle. We're going to do it my way. And tons of teams in the, in the league use pieces of the triangle. Like, it still lives, um, but not as a complete 100% system from start to finish. So it, it could happen. Like, that, I, I, that's, I'm not saying that would happen. Right. It's plausible. It is, a, it, is, it is more plausible than Phil Jackson coming back to head coach. How bad, though, how bad do you think Phil wants to prove that the triangle can still be successful at a high level? Because look, social media is stupid, but one of the pushbacks I got from even suggesting the Clippers should call Phil Jackson was that the triangle's outdated. It would never work in today's game. I happened to look at that Clippers team, Howard. I think Kawhi would be kind of perfect in the triangle in the same way Kobe was perfect in the triangle. I'm not sure how Paul George fits in there. Uh, Patrick Beverly, I, you know, Phil has coached non-dynamic offensive point guards before. Like, he'd probably have to become a better three-point shooter. Like, I look at the Clippers roster, I'm like, you know, it kind of makes a lot of sense for the triangle. And the triangle, by the way, as you know full well, is not averse to three-point shooting. Like, it's not. Yeah. It just sets it up in a very different way. So, yeah. I, I, I look at the personnel kind of being a fit for that. It's, it, it's not crazy. I do think that you know, the league has just moved beyond that. I think it doesn't have the currency that it needs. It doesn't have the buy-in that it needs. Also, today's, today's players, much more so than during Phil's time, whether it was with the Bulls or the Lakers, today's players, especially the Stars, they kind of want to do it their own way. There are no real 
intricate or very few intricate systems anymore. It's more about here's a, ver- a basic structure. You guys go do the rest yourself. It's a ton of pick and roll. Phil's like a, a shoes. That he, it's not that he doesn't believe you should ever have a pick and roll, but he hates the heavy screen and roll game. He hates heavy isolation, uh, say, say like what Houston does. Um, but yeah, listen, again, to the extent that the triangle, you can use, incorporate pieces of it as many teams do. Um, he could be there for that, that part of it. And also, again, as a sounding board for Ty Lue, it, it makes sense to me. Um, I, like, it, would, it would be interesting. I don't, I don't know that I could actually see it happening, but it'd be interesting. I'm dying on this hill here. I'm just right. taking the Phil Jackson hill, <laughs> and I'm dying on it. All right, a couple of things I want to hit we on. Uh, the Celtics, they bow out. Um, you know, third time, last four years, they've been to a conference finals come up short this time probably hurts more than the others because i don't know that the heat were measurably better than them in the same way that you know lebron and the cavaliers were uh, a better team back in those days uh, a lot of criticism being heaped at this point on brad stevens i mean you i guess your ten thousand foot view of the celtics loss i mean how disappointing was it to see them kind of go out like that I this is one of those things where being the distanced, emotionally completely cut off reporter like puts me in, in a like a weird at odds with a fan base, right? Because I I, I think Celtics fans are nuts if they're flip freaking out over this. I don't think this is, should be some major disappointment. I just don't. Um, Jason Tatum, I think I heard somewhere is twenty two. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Allegedly. Um, mentioned nope, every five nope, minutes during no every birth, broadcast. No, no birth certificate yet, so we'll have to wait. <laughs> Let's not even go down that path. Um, no, like your your star player is 22 and still evolving, and looks like he's a, an eventual MVP candidate, but he's not there yet. And there are aspects of his game, whether it's shooting, whether it's playmaking, that he's still got to, and, and and sometimes just remembering that he has teammates that he still has to evolve into. And when you don't have that kind of focal point. It makes it harder for every everybody else. And plus, you know, look, um, they were missing Gordon Hayward for a, large, a, a long stretch. They got him back toward the end. Kemba Walker, who, who knows how bad that knee was all season. Um, and they were also trying to balance when they had a four, all four of those guys. Okay, we got four guys who are all great with the ball in their hands, which is a luxury, but it also can sometimes create some, some bumpiness. So um, what was the stat you threw out? Three times in four years that they've lost in – uh, conference finals, yeah. In the conference finals, you could argue that a couple of those times they shouldn't have even been there. Yeah. And and this team has changed dramatically in the course of that four year run. So this is not the same team that was losing in those those previous ones. And though and at that time those were like, oh wow, I can't even believe they're here. Um, yes, I do think on paper they had more talent, especially offensive talent, than the Heat. But that's discounting the power and, and influence of somebody like Jimmy Butler on your roster. You know, Jimmy Butler makes everything make sense around him. Jimmy Butler drives everything around him. And the Celtics, Jason Tatum may someday become that guy, but he's 22. Jimmy Butler's 30. Like, he's, he's just not there yet. Um, I, I just – they could have won this series. They had the talent to win this series. It's not – it's not. I don't even consider it an upset. I didn't consider it an upset necessarily that the Heat beat the Bucks, except – in the most technical terms of, of, you know, well, you look at their records and their seating. Okay. It's an upset. Yeah, I get it. But I, the, the heat are that good. And yeah. I, I don't think Boston has much to be upset about. They've got 
two phenomenal young players who are built for today's NBA in Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. Long, uh, tall, multi-skilled, can, can, can guard multiple positions and play multiple roles on offense. That is a phenomenal uh, you know, uh, foundation that they'll have for years to come. And that's where the focus should be is, is how to, to strengthen around them. Yeah, as much as anything, I think it was a missed opportunity just because I think it gets tougher next year. You know, I think Golden State is going to be back in the mix next year. And, you know, who knows what they look like if they decide to keep the draft pick, trade the draft pick in their own conference. Uh, I, I'm going to assume the Bucks keep Giannis and get a little bit better because they'll put all their chips on the table to try to keep him long-term. Uh, the Nets... And they've got some star power stepping in there. Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, we'll see if they develop chemistry. But on paper, they look like a a formidable group. Uh, I just think the road gets tougher uh, for the Celtics this year. And this just feels like a a missed opportunity for them not to put something together. Yeah, we could certainly look at it that way, especially if you think like, oh, all bets were off because, you know, the championship was practically vacated by Kawhi leaving Toronto and um, the East was a little unsettled and the bubble made things even more ambiguous in terms of the pecking order. Like, yeah, okay, yes, yes. The, the opportunity was there in a unique way this year. And you're right. It should get harder next year, right? Like, we don't know who Philly's going to hire or how they're going to retool around those guys, but Philly should be in the mix. The Nets should be in the mix. The Bucks should still be in the mix. Boston should be in the mix. The Heat will still be in the mix. As of September 29th, as we're discussing this, those things are all true. But you and I both know, Chris, like, things go haywire. We, you know, what if Giannis decides... I'm not signing the Supermax, and in fact, I'd like to be traded. What, like, I, I don't think that that's what, the way it's going to play out there, but it, it could. Um, and Milwaukee's got some age issues after Giannis and Chris Middleton. Like That roster, are, they, are we sure that they're going to be back toward the top next season if they just run it back with the same group? Are we sure that the Sixers' chemistry is going to get any better? Are we sure that Kevin Durant is going to be whatever percentage of himself after Achilles? And my gosh, we haven't seen him. It's now been 15 months. And it'll be, you know, 18, 20 months in between games for him. We have no idea. Katie and Kyrie have never played together. Steve yep. Nash has never coached. Like, so, uh, yeah, th- they should be really good. They should be a, I don't know, 55-win team. I don't know. <laughs> so, I think there's enough volatility that the Celtics don't have to worry about, like, the door slamming shut. And Toronto's in a really interesting position, too, because – Gasol and Ibaka, uh, free agents, Van Vliet, a free agent who, you know, somebody might try to max them out. Um, there's no guarantee that the Raptors are back in this mix. So I, I don't, I, I, I don't think that there's this, um, this, this urgency that they needed to do this. Now it was now or never kind of thing. Like I, mm-hmm. I think that they've got a long window. Yeah. Uh, they certainly have a long window to be a contender. I, I think what gets them to the next level is how they draft the next couple of years. And if we're being completely honest, outside of like these top five picks that they've they acquired in the previous trades, they haven't been great with some of these draft picks. I mean, Romeo Langford, let's give him a pass for this year. He was injured for most of it, but let's see what, what he can bring next year. But right now, Tyler Hero, the player picked right before him, uh, looks like a much more uh, formidable player. You go back a few years... I mean, the Celtics drafted Gershon Yabuselli and Ante Zizic over Pascal Siakam. Like, this is how championship teams are built, Howard. They're built 
you know, through yeah. stars, you know, guys like, you know, Tatum and Brown can be the alphas on a championship team, but rosters are fleshed out with good draft picks. And the Celtics in recent years just haven't made those draft picks. And they've they've got another big one. Like I look at this year's draft, number 14 overall, that pick they got from Memphis, that's huge. Like, don't come to me with this is a weak draft because three years from now, there's going to be like three players in that range that turn out to be players. Like who thought yeah. Tyler Hero was going to be a significant player on a finals team this time last year. Like you just no. don't, you don't like the, I, I don't want to hear about weak draft. I don't want to hear about any of it. I, I you gotta hit on this pick, this pick, not to put too much pressure on it, but what they do with it, it, it could be the difference between a finals appearance next season and maybe no finals appearance for a few years. It's it, yeah. they're just that important. But there are other levers that they can pull, right? Like Gordon Hayward, I think is going into the last year of his deal. Um, and despite his injury history recently, I think he still has a lot of value out there to teams. Like if you want to, if you want to start playing the trade route, if you want to start, you know, you know, playing around the margins in other ways, I think they, they do have options, but you're right. When you're a really good team and, and you're no longer, and when, and when that cache of, of draft picks that you've acquired over the years starts running a little thin and you haven't made the most of them, you, it, it starts to get tough because you know, you're, you're, you're getting maxed out on, on the salary cap. Um, you're up against luxury tax. You're, you, you just don't have as much breathing room and you need, you know, for lack of a better term, the cheap labor that comes with you know, getting uh, really hitting on your draft picks with controlled cost rookie deals that are much lower than guys market value. And if you don't, it makes it really tough to sustain something long-term. The good news is, you know, the two guys are young enough and Jalen Brown and, and Jason Tatum that you can, you can get out from under your cap issues. You can keep retooling around them. You can, and you've, you've become, I look, I don't know how long this lasts, but they were never a free agent destination. And then suddenly they were when Gordon Hayward picked them and then Kemba Walker picked them. Like maybe, maybe they have shaken off whatever that, you know, that cloud was where the Celtics now, despite being a cold weather, Northeastern city, despite anything else, Teams, you know, you know, good good players will want to pick them, and they don't need the max guys now. They've got two studs to build around. They just need the high level role players who think, yeah, I want to hitch my wagon there because I think they've got a chance to make a run or two. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I just, I, I think they get it through the draft. I, I think that's where teams find these guys that cheap labor you're talking about, and those are the guys to propel them to the next level. Like, where would the Raptors be? without Pascal Siakam. Like, they wouldn't have won a championship last year. You know, when Kawhi slowed down a little bit in the finals, Siakam stepped up, made huge plays, especially in that that clincher. So I just, I think this draft coming up for Boston is is huge. Um, let me finish with this. The finals start on Wednesday. Uh, not to oversimplify it, but do you have uh, something you're, gonna, you're looking for in this series that could tilt it one way or the other? Uh, so, some variable matchup, how a team plays. What are you looking for as the series begins? I'm most curious about whether anybody on the Lakers not named LeBron and Anthony Davis will do something of note. Um, that has been a question for them since day one. That, you know, look, they're in the finals. So credit to that supporting cast. They have, uh, they're, they're there despite anything that, that those of us uh, in the punditry uh, would, have, would have wondered about. Like, there is no one guy that leaps out as being like, okay, that's the guy if LeBron's having an off night. And that's the thing. Like, the Heat are a really good defensive team. They have the kind of personnel to, um, to make LeBron inefficient, potentially. I'm not predicting that will happen. But look, Iguodala has done it before. Granted, it's been a few years. But they have Andre Iguodala. They've got Jay Crowder. 
they've got Jimmy Butler. They've got Bam Adebayo. Like, they've got, you know, no one guy is going to stop LeBron, and we know that. But they have a, a, an arsenal of guys who they can rotate on LeBron or any combination of them. And we know LeBron's always going to make the right basketball play. He's going to give up the ball. If AD is on the court, maybe every time he gives it up, it's to AD for an easy dunk. Maybe. But you're going to need guys to make shots. Right now, their three-point shooting in the playoffs is actually way beyond what you'd expect it to be. I was looking it up earlier, like Rondo is shooting 44% or something from three. But how much are you really relying on you know, uh, Rondo and Caruso and Kuzma and these guys to make all those open threes? You know, can they sustain that against a Heat team that, that's really quick defensively? Um, that's the whole thing. You know LeBron is, is going to, especially at age 35, in his 17th year, and without any, you know, guarantee that he'll ever get this chance again. Like this, this was a chance that a lot of people thought wouldn't come around again, period. And here he is. He's this close to a fourth championship and, you know, nothing's guaranteed. So I think we will see the best of LeBron, but I think we will see the best of, of the Heat try to do everything possible to make him inefficient and make some of those role guys on the Lakers beat them. Um, I don't know if those guys are up for it or not, I've, I've got, if we're going to do predictions here, I think Lakers in seven sounds about right to me because I do think the Heat have the ability to to push them that hard. I don't think this is a, you know, AD is awesome. He's the second best player in the series. But, the you know, as, as a lot of people have been pointing out in the last day or so, and I, I don't disagree, wherever you want to draw the line, after those two, you can make the case that whatever, four of the next six, five of the next six are the Heat. Um. They've got they've got a better array in general on that roster. Yeah, I like the Lakers in five, but wow. I, I well, I don't say that. Uh, look, like what was it? Uh, I think it was twenty eight or twenty seventeen when the Warriors beat the Cavaliers in five, and it, like on paper, it's like well, Warriors won in a row, but you and I were there. It wasn't. It was Kevin Durant like doing superhuman things yeah. to win games at the wire. So you can you can lose a series in five games, still have it be ultra competitive. Agreed. I just think I think LeBron at the end of these games is gonna be too tough to stop. I throw out the regular season record because I mean back then Tyler Hero was playing behind Kendrick Nunn. Back then Andre Guadala and Jay Crowder were not part of that those teams. Right. So it's entirely different. What is a constant and something I, I worry about is that Anthony Davis kicked the crap out of Bam Adebayo. Like, you look at the numbers. Like, Davis averaged, like, 30, and Adebayo averaged less than 12. And they both played a significant amount of minutes in both those matchups. Uh, I don't remember if they were matched up the entire time, but I would assume it was a lot of the time in that uh, in that game. That can't happen. Like, Adebayo has to play, like, conference finals Adebayo. Like, he has got to be great for the Heat to have a chance. I think Spolster's going to throw some, some of those, you know, janky defenses that we've seen in the past at the Heat, I think you'll see some zone in that series, try to make those those uh, uh, those Lakers shooters uh, come up big. But uh, to me, a big matchup to watch is Adebayo versus AD. Like, I think they'll both be matched up with each other for significant portions of the series. And how that matchup goes is going to be huge because you, you can't just get just run over in the, in the way Davis did to Adebayo in the, in the two games of the series. Yeah, I, I agree. I, the only concern I'd have if I'm the Heat, though, is like I don't want Adebayo on AD so much that he ends up in foul trouble because AD's bigger and stronger, and Adebayo's a phenomenal defender, and I, I think he's he's got the ability to bother him without fouling. But if he's on him 
every minute that they're both in the game, I, I'd be worried. I don't, I don't want Bam taken out of rhythm or having to then play cautiously. Uh, he's important as a role man for them too. And as a score, um, not a primary score, but like they, they, they score, they, they score by committee, right? Like Jimmy could drop 40 on a given night and hero might go off and Dragic might go off. But for the most part, they're a score by committee kind of team. And Autobio is part of that. So I, I, I would be a little concerned about having him in foul trouble if he's got too much AD responsibility. I wonder if you dust off, you know, Myers Leonard to go like bang around on him for a while and, and just spend some fouls and try to wear him out and um, Kelly Olynyk, whoever, just just starts, you know, throwing sacrificial lambs out there. <laughs> you you really are throwing sacrificial lambs out there because I mean Myers <laughs> Leonard, I think Myers Leonard was starting for that team yeah. uh, during the the regular season matchups, and I uh, don't recall him being all that effective. In uh, oh, I didn't in say he'd be effective. I, I, I you know, <laughs> you just what, what are you, what are you looking for in in <laughs> something like that? Just a guy, just a body. Yeah, Myers, Myers you know. Leonard, Myers Leonard. When the Lakers beat the Heat by fifty in the first game, Myers Leonard played twelve minutes uh, as a starter. Kelly Olynyk played thirty. So there's your your front line right there. And uh, Anthony Davis had himself. Uh, what was his final number there? <laughs> Twenty six points, uh, eight rebounds, seven assists. You just can't have you can't have yeah. that be the outcome of this game. I I mean I agree. I'm just with saying you. I want to protect Bam a little. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, you, you don't play him, you know, you, until you get to the fourth quarter. You probably try to mix and match and give him a break there. But uh, at some point they're going to be matched up, and he's got to come up big. I think we both can agree on that. He's going to have to have yeah. a, a huge series to win. Uh, Howard, always appreciate it, man. Uh, enjoy uh, these conversations. And uh, we will talk next when Phil Jackson is being introduced as the new coach of the Clippers, okay? <laughs> I, lo- I look forward to that one. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it, Howard. Coming up next, Mike Breen. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. 
Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, joining me now on the show, a very familiar voice to every NBA fan out there. He is going to—he is calling his 15th NBA Finals this week for ABC and ESPN. He is the voice of the NBA, Mike Breen. What's up, Mike? Oh, Chris, how are you, bud? Well, um, uh, happy to be out of the bubble, but out a couple of weeks, I feel like my health has improved, my eating habits have improved, uh, everything has improved since my two-month stint in the bubble. So uh, you're you're still immersed in it, but uh, how's that going for you? I'll, I'll be equally as happy when I leave uh, as, as you were. You know, as you know, it's just, um, it's just quite the experience. Uh, there's part of it that is just, um, you know, you feel like you're part of history. Um, you know, being so unprecedented in terms of the circumstances, there's something fascinating about seeing how how it all plays out. It's it's remarkable how they've been able to make it work. But then, then there's also, you know, it's it's um, it's an emotional challenge when you're away from your family and your and your friends, and uh, it gives you an idea of, of what the players are going through because it's, you know, the human element has played, I think, in my opinion, an enormous role. And uh, I think it's been underplayed a little bit. So as somebody who's experienced that human element and, and really looking forward to going home, um, you know, it's, it's had its ups and downs. But overall, I think it's one of the most remarkable things I've ever seen in terms of it all coming together and working. Yeah. When it comes to that human element, how have you seen that kind of manifest itself? I mean, I think you're right that the human element is – a variable in these playoffs like it's never been before. But w- when you say that, w- what do you mean by that? Well, I think you can even see um, teams and players, the disparity in their performances from game to game, sometimes even from half to half, um, is is pretty wide. And, you know, you've seen some some terrific players have some some brutal games. You've seen some teams that look like they are, are you know, just – world beaters one night and then the next night not that they look disinterested but there's not that same intensity and i think that that plays a a large part of it in terms of of uh, the consistency of play i think overall the play is so much better than i ever thought it was going to be before i came down here but you've seen some some real inconsistency in terms of again i don't want to use intensity or effort there's just there's some nights it looks like something's missing yeah, there definitely is a mental factor to all that with, with guys having to kind of go through what is effectively Groundhog's Day every single day uh, inside that bubble. Uh, for, for, your, for your purposes, Mike, usually you're right there courtside uh, calling the game from a very close vantage point. Now, you've done, obviously, games in the past 
where you haven't had that same vantage point. But what's it been like to to work in these elements, to be behind the glass, I don't know what it is, 20, 30 feet away from, from courtside? Uh, what's that experience been like? It's, you know, Chris, it's been a challenge. I don't want to make it sound like any kind of hardship. I mean, mm-hmm. we're, we're staying in a beautiful hotel and we're taken care of. But from a, you know, a play-by-play standpoint, and I, and I think – Mark uh, and Jeff would feel the same way. It's a challenge because we are about, I'd say, 20 or 30 rows back. The, the plexiglass is just, it's just so different that you're separated. So, you know, you don't have that immediacy in terms of the connection right there. And, and because we've worked together so long, we're able to go through it. And just, you know, from a vantage point of calling the game, it's, it's different. Um, I, miss, I miss being up close. I think that's a big part of of, you know, seeing what's going on, being able to feel the intensity or seeing the anger or the nerves of a player, see it in their eyes or a coach or an official. Uh, so you miss some of that. But the biggest thing that, that I miss, and I think everybody feels the same way, uh, I have so underappreciated, at least I feel this way now, what fans bring to, to the event, what they bring to the event for the players, what they bring to the event for us as broadcasters and even for the viewers at home, it's such a special part of the experience. And myself personally, you know, I, I use the crowd quite a bit in, in how I call a game and I've had to make some adjustments and there's some nights where, you know, you're making calls and you normally use the crowd and you wonder, you know, did I, did I get it right? Was I screaming too much? Was I not talking? <laughs> enough? So it's, it's, um, you know, again, it's a challenge. It's been it's been really a fascinating challenge, but but it's definitely it's so different that it presents a challenge. Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that about the crowd because there were a half dozen times early on when I almost wasn't sure if I was seeing a big play. If that makes any sense, like I think it, even the first time it happened was the very first seeding game between the Lakers and the Clippers when LeBron had like this incredible offensive and defensive possession to help the Lakers win that game. And usually like the crowd, I don't know if it tells you it's a big play, but it kind of affirms that it was a big play or a big sequence. And I'm watching that with my eyes. I'm like, that was one of the best offensive defensive sequences I've ever seen. I don't know if you had any kind of similar experience where, you know, something incredible happens, but without the crowd, you're almost like, did I really see that accurately? Am I am I sure that was was the same play I thought it was? Oh, absolutely. There's absolutely, especially at the end of games, because it's still so quiet in there. I know they have the, the virtual fans and and some of the music and the, the PA, but it's just still so quiet. So there have been a number of times where I thought, well, maybe maybe I shouldn't have gotten that excited, but you know, just so used to seeing such extraordinary things from these players. So you just go with with uh, with your experience on something like that. But I, I've had I've had a, a couple of times where I completely missed a play. I, there was Eric Gordon took a shot, and from from the angle I had, it looked like it hit the bottom of the net, went under the rim, and I'm calling it good. And <laughs> thankfully, definitely, <laughs> Mike, that that was an air ball. And the other night, I misidentified a, a player because he was through a couple of things. So it was hard. So um, there's almost like a for me. Um, there's a little pause before you make some calls because you have to make sure because you, you don't have the same vantage point and it just looks all so different than, than what we're used to. I, I think you got you mixed up Tatum and Cantor on the yes. one play. But I but, don't blame you for that, Mike, because Cantor has 
the greatest or have the greatest Orlando tan you've ever seen in your life. Like he, his skin changed like three shades from the amount of time he spent outside. They- well, that, thank you so much for giving me a built-in excuse for, for <laughs> but you know, it's, you know, it's all, it's all part of it. And um, uh, it's okay. Okay. From my standpoint, I always say, um, you know, you make mistakes every game. You just hope they're not, not at a big moment. Is this the most time you've spent with Mark and Jeff in, you know, one period? Well, if it's not, it certainly feels like it. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's no question. That's been, but quite honestly, that's been one of the real saving graces uh, is that we've had all this time together. Um, and the interesting thing is Mark and Jeff, who never play golf, and I love golf, uh, they have become addicted to the game, and they're starting to play more than I am. And so that camaraderie has been fun. I mean, we've been together so long, um, you know, to have something new like that to, to, to have fun with. But that's, that's what has saved us is having, you know, having some extra time together that we normally wouldn't because you're normally getting on a flight and you're going home for a day or two. And, you know, so that stuff has helped. But I, I do miss, um, you know, and I, I know you feel the same way, I miss the, the face-to-face contact with the coaches and the players and, and team officials and league officials. I mean, that's, that's as fun part of the job as, as calling the games, the relationships and the friendships. And we're not in the same bubble as, as the players and coaches. So we have zero face-to-face interaction with them. Everything is, is done on Zoom. So, so I miss that part. Uh, so we're, we're cherishing the part of, of at least having each other in the, in the bubble to kind of get us through this. Spending as much time with them as you have, who wants to be a head coach again more, Mark Jackson or Jeff Van Gundy? You know, I, I think for both of them, um, not to give you a cop-out answer, Chris, but I, I think it's in their blood. You know, Jeff has obviously coached um, more years in the league, but, but Mark was, to me, he was such a natural when he was at Golden State, and he did such a good job. And the fact that, you know, it, it didn't end the way he wanted it to, and it's taken this long for him to get another chance. I, I, I don't, I don't get it. I don't, I don't understand. If you're a team and, and you want to have your team reach potential, both of these guys will do that. And and I say that objectively. I, they're they're just they're fantastic coaches. And I know they would both love to have another shot because it's something that they're they're good at and it's something that's in their blood. If you lost one of them next year, would you want a third in your booth or would you want to <laughs> go with one with just two? You're, you're asking me decisions that are way above my... <laughs> You've got input. I will say, I will say this. Um, a three-man booth is, or a three-woman booth or whoever it's set up is, is, a, is a difficult thing to, to coordinate from a standpoint of the two analysts. Um, I think two things have to happen. Number one, uh, they have to respect each other and respect their basketball knowledge. And the second thing is they, you have to like each other. And these two have such a unique relationship of respect and admiration that it really works. There's never, never a fight for, for airtime. There's no egos. Uh, and most importantly, when the three of us have this, if somebody says something that um, either I think is wrong or Jeff or Mark, like, it'll come right at you. Nobody's feelings get hurt. In fact, we, we always talk about that. If somebody makes a mistake, correct it. Or if somebody disagrees with something, come at me. And I think it really works, and it's it's hard. And and to get that special dynamic that those two have, to me, that's what makes it work. And for me, the you know, all I have to do when I'm working with two is I've got to pull back a little more. I don't talk as I know as much, 
And it's so easy when it's those two guys because um, their chemistry that they have and the way they go back and forth to me is, is, is it's informative and it's entertaining. So there was a faction of people, Mike, that believed coming into this that this would be an asterisk championship, that it wouldn't be it sh- or it shouldn't be recognized as a legitimate title. And we've gone down this path before with what was the 99 Spurs and even the shortened season back in 2011 where people would say, ah, it's not a real... You remember Phil Jackson gave voice to that back in the early 2000s when he commented on on the Spurs championships. Um, did you have a feeling on whether it should be considered an asterisk championship not coming in? And has having experienced what you've experienced and seen what you've seen, has that affected how you view the outcome of this this, this series? Uh, the My coming into it, I believe there, the asterisk was necessary, but for a good reason, not not because it wasn't as good. I, I, I felt before I came down here, I thought that this was going to be one of those championships that people will talk about in 20 years from now, the team that won it in the bubble, because it's completely different from anything any of these players have ever experienced. Uh, the circumstances are so unprecedented um, that to overcome these different obstacles to me is so impressive. Again, <coughs> excuse me, they're staying in lush hotels. They've got everything at their fingertips in terms of what they need. But this is not how they were you know, born and bred in the NBA. This is not how it's supposed to happen. And self-motivation is, is, is enormous in terms of bringing that energy every day, being able to overcome you know, missing that family. Uh, you know, for example, I have three adult children. I can't imagine having small children and being away from them. It's hard enough for me being away from my adult children. I can't imagine to be able to do that. And then you get the calls from home about, uh, oh, he's not sleeping or so-and-so is not feeling. It's just, it's such an emotional roller coaster here. And now that I've been here and experienced that on my level, uh, and I'm not the one out there running up and down the court, uh, I think it's even more impressive what they've been able to do and what they've been able to overcome. Um, And for me, to me, and I don't want to be overly dramatic, but I, I think this is an historic championship and the team that wins this for them to be able to overcome and deal with all the differences that, that they've had, something they've never experienced is, uh, is remarkable. Yeah, I, I came in feeling like it might be a questionable championship because of you know who, who was going to be playing, you know, no home court advantage here or there. What if something crazy happens like it did in 99 when the Knicks made that run uh, all the way to the finals in a lockout shortened season? Uh, but having experienced it, I'm with you. I mean, this... This might be one of the hardest championships ever won, you know. It's, you know, especially for the teams or team singular that's been here from start to finish and wins it like that. That that to me will be a tremendous accomplishment. Three plus months of isolation, effective isolation, with your teammates and a handful of family at the very end. And and I've found Mike that you know family is being incorporated into all this. A lot of guys there didn't really want their family down there. They started viewing it as like a job it's like look we just let's just put our head down and get through this and we'll suffer in silence so to speak we don't need the energy of new people coming in that don't have our responsibilities in there i think this will be right up there with with one of the great greatest accomplished championships that i've ever witnessed and and you also you add into the fact that while they're in this bubble while they're in this isolation what's going on in the country uh, with the pandemic with the social unrest 
and the fight for social justice, all this stuff together while they're in there just adds to anxiety. And, you know, Paul George came out and said, you know, that after that, that one game that the bubble got the best of them and, and got depressed and, and, you know, mental health issues to me is, is one of the most under talked about uh, problems we have in the country. And now because of, you know, courageous players, and I don't use that word courageous very often, but courageous players like Kevin Love and, and DeMar DeRozan and what George did, it's, um, it's the impact that that can have on people who might be hesitant to talk about issues they go through. And it's a real thing down here and for these players. And, and, you know, everything like that impacts them. And so much of it is so important to them that you add all those factors in. And I agree with you. I think uh, this is one of the hardest championships to win. Last thing I want to ask you about, you 15th year doing these finals, that means you've seen every single one of LeBron's appearances in the finals, dating back to 2007 uh, with the Cavaliers. Uh, you know, we don't know the outcome of this series yet, but this finals run for LeBron, I mean, wh- where do you place it amongst some of his you know, greater accomplishments, whether it was the team in 07 where it was LeBron and kind of a bunch of guys that had really no business being, you know, star players on a finals team, uh, you know, coming back from three, one down that, that, I guess that was the outcome of that series, but that, that's a team in 2016 that upended the Warriors. I mean, where do you place this in kind of the pantheon of LeBron James accomplishments? It, it has to be up there. I, I don't know if I'm going to rank it one, two or three, whatever. Um, you know, the championships in Miami, were it's almost like that was expected it was his time he had great players with him and he led them to 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 back-to-back titles Uh, i thought the cleveland championship was uh you know for me that was always his shining moment from a standpoint of the pressure that he felt to bring that championship to that city it was so important for him to go back there that was the 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 number one priority really the only priority for him going back to cleveland was to bring that city a championship and to do it the way they did it after trailing three to one, um, I, I thought, how can you possibly top that? But what he's done this year, again, with what we just talked about, with the unprecedented circumstances, the stoppage of play, and then to come back, um, he's just, you know, he, he's the def- definition of, of legendary because I always feel, you know, there, there, are, there are two things, and, and the main one is to have sustained excellence for so many years. I mean, it's just, it's, it's off the charts. You, it, it's, it's hard to fathom that he's been this good for this long. You know, we, we always talk about players um, being in their prime, their athletic prime. He's had the longest prime of anybody who's ever played <laughs> sports, for crying out loud. I mean, the prime just keeps going. He shows no signs of, of, of really declining. And his commitment to, to being in the best physical shape um, is I think people underestimate how tough that is at somebody uh, at his age performing in, in this uh, this particular way. And and the last thing is it's always been about the team with him, always. You know, if we draw up all the key points of what we want from our star athletes, he, he, every box is checked because it starts with what matters is winning, what matters is being a great teammate, and that's what his whole career has been about, even though – his individual accolades are as good as anybody's ever done. You know, we always compare Michael and LeBron and look, LeBron's chasing a championship at 35. Michael won a championship, his last championship in his mid thirties. 
how do you, I mean, when you look at the way those two guys have, have, have their games have aged and how they've adapted to their older age, I mean, do you see similarities there? I mean, how do you, how do you look at that when, you know, Jordan was able to win a championship at, I think it was 34, 35 uh, against, I think it was Utah the last time around and the way LeBron's trying to do it now, how do you compare them trying to do something at this stage of their careers? Well, I, I think they've, um, both of them, you know, clearly couldn't do certain things physically at this age that they couldn't do, you know, that they did earlier in their career. But there are certain things that, that they did better and they adjusted um, and they used their experience and their smarts and their attention to detail in terms of their opponent and their, not just their opponent, but their teammates and what their teammates do well, how to make their teammates better. I, I felt both of them, you know, they're both, again, the, the numbers that they put up uh, for themselves are, are staggering. But I feel both of them have, have learned how to be better teammates as they get older and knowing what's this guy's strength and that guy's strength and what might be his weakness and their ability to – I mean, LeBron knows his opponents as well as, as anybody. I, I think it was uh, Cook who was saying that during the finals when he was with Golden State, he's talking about LeBron is calling out uh, Golden State sets before the Golden State was. Like he, he scouted the team so much. And we just spoke to, uh, to Anthony Davis about an hour ago, and he said that he was in his room the other night. It was a Monday night. And LeBron has like a, a stack of papers, all scouting reports on Miami, both team-wise and individual-wise. So, you know, they, they adjusted to what they may have lost athletically uh, to what's up, up in their head and their brain in terms of still providing that edge that they need. Speaking of intelligence, are you looking forward to the Tom Thibodeau era in New York? <laughs> yes, yes, I am. You know, I first met Tom when he was an assistant uh, with the Knicks, and his, you know, it just his basketball mind is always churning, always looking for new angles, always looking to uh, to do something better. And you know, the, the, the Knicks have had obviously a, a really rough stretch, but I've always felt with 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 Tom, his his whole approach is the no excuse approach. So even when his teams, you know, say in Chicago. Derek Rose goes down. That's okay. We still have enough to win. There was never an excuse that you couldn't win that particular night. And, and I think that's what's important that, that he's bringing. Um, obviously, they've got to up, upgrade the roster um, because they just, you know, they just need to get better talent. But I, I am confident that whatever the roster is, that roster will reach its potential and win more games than you expected because he just he holds everybody accountable, including himself. Yeah, I I remember, and Tibbs confirmed this to me when I asked him years later. But his the first season he was out of the game in Chicago when he got let go, he went back and he watched every single game he's ever coached. Like that was how he spent his next year, just sitting in I think it was like the Waldorf or wherever it was in Chicago, just watching every single game back. It's that kind of those basketball minds, Mike. I mean, he's 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 up there. He's an intense one, that's for sure. You know, we we always talk about players coming back the next year with something new to their game and how they improve. I don't think that we give enough credit. The coaches do that too. You know, they spend their off seasons. Uh, they're not working on their jumper or their handle. They're working on their, their defensive schemes. They're working on their motivation skills. Um, and they improved. And I think every great coach, that's a big thing is they come back better or they learn from a situation what they didn't do well in a certain city when they go to a new team. And it's, I think he's been one like that throughout his career. Last thing for you. Um, 
and this is more of a question about a gut feeling that you may or may not have. Uh, there's a job opening now in Los Angeles. Could you ever see Phil Jackson getting back into the coaching ranks? I, I hate to do speculation on, on <laughs> no idea, but if you want to just ask for my gut with no idea, um, I'm going to say no. I, I, I think uh, I, I don't think he'd want to do that right now. I think he's pretty comfortable in, in where his life's at. Yeah, yeah I, I would guess. If it wasn't Los Angeles, I would completely rule it out. But I just, I wonder. I wonder if there's a phone call to Montana to see what Phil's up to and uh, how's it going up there. Yeah, the, the, uh, I mean, coaches are they're a, they're a different breed, and it's something they they'll do for the rest of their lives. And if, if you throw an offer, I wouldn't say he wouldn't think about it. Maybe he would think about it, but that would be quite the story. Hey, Larry Brown would still coach somewhere if somebody anybody offer Larry a job. Like, sure, high school, absolutely. I'll right. take the gig. I'll take the gig. Uh, Mike, good luck this week. 15th NBA Finals. You can catch it all on ABC and ESPN. Always a pleasure to catch up with you, Mike. I appreciate it. Thanks, my friend. Always a pleasure, Chris. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.